Hi everyone, welcome to the San Diego News Fix. I'm Christy Totten. Voting in the 2022 general election begins October 12th. Today, you're going to hear from candidates for California Attorney General. First, you'll hear from incumbent Rob Bonta, a Democrat. Then you're going to hear from Nathan Hawkman, a Republican. Both candidates met with the San Diego Union-Tribune editorial boards to discuss crime, cannabis, immigration, and more. This is the first 20 or so minutes of each conversation. To hear the whole interview, go online to San Diego UnionTribune.com slash election 2022. Thanks for listening. Okay, today the editorial board is joined by Attorney General uh, Rob Bonta, who's on the November 8th ballot. Um, so Attorney General, thanks for taking the time today. Let me ask you the first question. Your opponent has um, a really uh, extensive legal background. He's trying to make the case that you're a politician who's risen through those circles and that he would be a better choice because he's risen through legal circles and as such would be a better candidate for the job. What do you say to that line of thinking and, and, and um, when, 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 when not just your, 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 your opponents, but when a voter raises that line of thinking to you? I think it misses the mark. Uh, the California Attorney General, uh, the role that we have, that I have leading the second largest Department of Justice in the nation, the, as the Chief Law Officer for the State of California, it is exactly the intersection of law, politics, and policy. That's what I've done my entire career. Uh, I've been in the courtroom. I've been a trial attorney. I've done everything from preparing for a complaint, filing a complaint, uh, conducting discovery, writing dispositive motions, going to court, picking a jury, um, cross-examinations, closing to a jury, getting the verdict. Uh, in my case, all winning verdicts, uh, taking cases to the uh, on appeal, arguing in front of the Ninth Circuit on Bonk. I have been in courtrooms time and time again, and uh, I've actually been elected by the people of this state uh, for over 15 years, something my opponent cannot say, never been elected ever uh, to any position, um, whether it be um, even a local school board, and been in the legislature of the greatest um, legislative body uh, in, in the uh, nation for almost a decade, um, working on the biggest issues in the state of California, um, leading on many of those issues from public safety and criminal justice reform, environment, healthcare, housing, um, you name it, and uh, built relationships with all branches of government during that time, um, and now leading the California Department of Justice. So, um, and, and I, I was in a private firm, um, one of the best in the nation, uh, and, and certainly one of the best in the state, the Kecker and Van Ness law firm where I practiced and started. I was a, I was a federal law clerk, clerk as well, and then served in uh, the best city attorney's office in the country, the San Francisco city attorney's office, a municipal public law office, uh, not um, dissimilar to the California Department of Justice. So um, my experience and my path is built perfectly for being the California attorney general, um, certainly um, my opponent would like to tout his, um, I think one thing he doesn't say is that he, he, he is a p criminal defense attorney right now. He is a Beverly Hills attorney uh, who represents folks who have been alleged uh, to have and um, potentially charged to have violated the criminal laws uh, of the federal government by not paying enough taxes. That's primarily what he does. Um, and so to talk about a prosecution um, and law enforcement as he uh, seeks uh, to want to do when uh, I am the public safety candidate in this race, uh, overseeing a law enforcement agency uh, 
um, that has removed guns from the hands of those who shouldn't have them, which has conducted special operations units that have stopped uh, mass shootings in progress, prevented murders as they were happening in real time, have um, solved cold cases, have, um, as just recently as we announced on Sunday in, in Merced, um, captured a alleged murderer of, of an eight-year-old who had been uh, fleeing and seeking to evade police. We've um, we've uh, been part of the biggest organized retail um, criminal uh, um, arrest and prosecution in the in the history of our of our state. We've um, expanded our efforts to take down human trafficking rings. Um, we've taken on hate crimes. Um, we're enforcing the law of the state of California. We're holding people accountable. So uh, the experience that I have, I think, is, is very fitting. And uh, that was my response to uh, the suggestion uh, otherwise. Can I ask you a question about Propositions 47 and 57, which a lot of people have been criticizing um, uh, is retail theft increases. And we all see these videos of you know people running into stores and grabbing stuff. What you said in, in our most recent Q&A that you would use data to analyze those, but doesn't the data show that the doubling of the misdemeanor limit for for for, for shoplifting um, has increased crime. That's what a lot of police chiefs will tell you. I think the data is more complicated than that. I think you need to look at uh, different data points and, and different trend lines, including the trend line that California has the eleventh lowest threshold in the nation when it comes to the threshold between uh, dividing a misdemeanor to, uh, and a felony. Only 10 states in the whole country have lower uh, thresholds than us. Texas is, is higher than us. South Carolina is higher than us. You know, Traditionally, red states. And um, very important also to push back against the false narrative that uh, theft uh, uh, up to $950 is decriminalized, that it's somehow legal and allowed. It is not. It is a violation of the law. It is a crime. It is a misdemeanor crime punishable by up to a year in prison. And so I, I think what is, and, and, and look, this debate is, is uh, um, something that we're having now, seven years after the passage of, of Prop 47, there's a through line and longitudinal set of data from the time Proposition 47 passed until now that um, will show that there was not increases in um, uh, you know, petty thefts and, and property crimes right after Prop 47 passed. I think that data is important to, to, to look at as well. And, and we're, we're looking for a solution. So any, any approach that can actually solve the problem that is more than um, an ideological perspective, but it is a data-driven, evidence-based approach that can keep people safe and, and make sure that is part of a fair justice system, I, I think is appropriate. So, um, you know, what you have just mentioned, we all experienced together. Thanksgiving of last year, um, multiple brazen um, flash mob type uh, thefts in, in, in um, you know, San Francisco, Walnut Creek, Los Angeles, every one of them felony charges uh, the, the, based on the existing California law. Uh, you aggregate um, the uh, amount of property stolen. In some of those cases, it was over a million dollars. So, um, what we what we also know that the data shows is that what stops and deters people from committing crime is knowing that they will be caught if they commit the crime. So it is very important that we arrest people when they commit the crime. And um, 
so it, it is less the, the sentence that is a deterrent as it is the belief that you will get caught. And I believe we must arrest. And when we arrest, you um, must prosecute and prosecute uh, with accountability that is appropriate to the crime. For more serious crimes, obviously more serious punishment, more serious accountability, more serious sentencing. For less um, serious crimes, you have proportionate um, uh, accountability and, and, and punishment. Uh, but, but you always must arrest. Whenever someone hurts somebody, harms somebody, takes their property, steals their property, there must be accountability and uh, you must be held to account and you must be arrested. Prop 47, uh, it sounds like you're depicting its critics as being uh, politically motivated, but the Washington Post did the definitive analysis on the piece that found it had created a sense of lawlessness among drug users who felt like they never suffered any consequences for their retail thefts. And they used San Diego as the anecdotal example of this. So the idea that this is just uh, partisan outrage is undercut by the fact that a banner, you know, key part of the mainstream media said it's as bad as people said. So what's your reaction to the Washington Post analysis of the data and found that there was, in fact, a problem with lawlessness fueled by the doubling of the felony threshold? I think that um, I don't think the, the words partisan outrage crossed my lips. Uh, I did say that it's important to focus on evidence and data rather than ideological perspectives, including, you know, long held, uh, pre held ideological perspectives on this issue. If the data shows something, then the data shows something. Uh, but it shouldn't be a uh, way to superimpose a pre existing ideological perspective on um, a, a set of events. And um, there might be a, a feeling as the Washington Post sh showed, um, uh, reported around some people about what the consequences are. And uh, let's ask ourselves why. Uh, there is that that feeling, that belief. Again, uh, my belief is we must arrest people when they commit the crimes. If they're not being arrested, then they might believe that there are no consequences, but it's not because they're not crimes. Proposition 47 makes them a crime. They are a crime. It is a misdemeanor crime punishable by prison, by jail up to a year. And so it's a crime and you need to arrest people and hold them accountable for that crime. And so I think arrests and prosecutions consistent uh, uh, with the existing law um, might uh, deteriorate and push back against that uh, view that the Washington Post seems to have found with some people. Two, th two more specific questions from me, and then I will uh, invite Hope Ball and my other colleagues weigh in. The first has to do with Proposition 57 in 2016, when it was being pushed by Jerry Brown after kind of a gut in the men process. They had the unfortunate coincidence of coming up right as the Stanford rape case was in the news. And Prop 57 defines the rape of an unconscious person as a misdemeanor. Uh, so uh, when I hear people dismiss criticisms of 57, I just get back to that fact. Do you think rape of an unconscious person is a misdemeanor or is it a violent felony? I think there's a number of uh, potential recategorizations that need to be considered. Domestic violence, another one, human trafficking, another one. Uh, I think that is a ripe and fertile a uh, place for, for debate around whether um, Prop 57 nailed it on, on every issue, on its categorization of, of every crime. So um, I think that some of the major components of Prop 57 are, are, are ones with a, a lot of legs and obviously a lot of support from the people of California, including um, judges instead of district attorneys de determining when a juvenile will be tried as an adult and the idea of having um, rehabilitation credits uh, to encourage and incent people to uh, get on a better path and be successful it, when it's time when their sentence ends and it's time for reentry into the community. 
but the categorization of some crimes, I think, uh, deserves uh, additional review. Last question for me has to do with the LA Times uh, sweeping series about cannabis and how badly in the LA Times view things have gotten. It described a sense of lawlessness and anarchy in many rural counties across the state. It uh, described a sense of desperation among legal growers and legal sellers that they'll never catch up. Uh, do you accept the broad conclusions of the LA Times report? Do you think it exaggerated? What's your take on the state of cannabis regulation and the cannabis industry, legal and otherwise, in California? I think the people of our state, uh, through the legislature, and I was one of the, the five uh, co-authors that led to the MCRSA, leading to the uh, regula regulation um, uh, of medical cannabis for the first time in the history of our state. And then soon thereafter, within just two years, Proposition 64 passed uh, legalizing and regulating adult use cannabis. And there is a, a social compact, a promise that's been made to the people of California that there will be one marketplace, a legalized, regulated marketplace that uplifts and supports the health of our environment, um, supports public health by quality controls of uh, cannabis products, um, uh, prevents um, uh, movement into the uh, illicit marketplace, and enhances public safety. And right now, we do not have that. The illicit marketplace is is is. Um, larger than the legal marketplace. We don't have one marketplace, uh, only a legal marketplace, and we need to do a number of things, I think, to address uh, the illicit marketplace. And these are things I've been talking about for years and, and pushing for in the legislature. Um, one, we need to uh, reduce barriers for those who were in what was entirely an illicit marketplace for a long time uh, to be able to migrate to the legal marketplace. That could be reducing costs. Um, in terms of some of the regulatory costs and, and administrative costs, as well as uh, a temporary reduction in taxes. I have had bills that I've introduced year after year on, on that issue. Uh, we also have to crack down on the illicit marketplace by um, um, taking down and, and dismantling the illicit um, marketplace infrastructure and making sure that um, there are consequences and that uh, there is punishment and, and um, dismantling of, of the illicit marketplace infrastructure. And so I've done multiple flyovers with, with local law enforcement partners, um, getting a better handle on, on the, the breadth and depth of the issue. And we have pulled together a, um, a task force of uh, law enforcement uh, folks from throughout the state to work on this issue, working also with our Bureau of Cannabis Control. So um, the illicit marketplace uh, needs to be uh, dismantled and taken down. There needs to be one marketplace only, a regulated marketplace, and that's something that we're focused on. I have a question about cannabis. Uh, with legalization, uh, you know, people's past criminal records were supposed to have been cleared. Uh, you you wrote this. You have said that it is taking too long. A lot of people are still waiting. So, what can your office do to speed that up? I offered the bill that required, as you mentioned automatic expungements and modifications of cannabis-related crimes consistent with P Proposition 64. And the, the major paradigm shift with that law was that the burden should not be on the individual, uh, and in this case, thousands of individuals across California to, one, know that they're eligible for a modification or a reduction of their criminal record, and then to uh, pay for fingerprints and um, prepare a submission for court, maybe take time off from work to go to court. Um, that that the law has said that they uh, should have these uh, crimes um, wiped from their records and that the government should do that. And we prepared a, a, a first in the nation type of bill that allowed for that. Um, it required a, prepared a strict timeline for 
uh, district attorneys to uh, lodge an objection if they had one, and then for um, uh, the the modification to continue through the process. One one aspect uh, that was a, a difficulty of the bill was providing a deadline for the judicial branch to modify their records in accordance with the law. And I know that there is additional legislation um, right now going th going through the the process to um, prevent uh, uh, provide additional accountability and responsibility. We are preparing a, a website where we can update and provide information to the public uh, in a transparent way as to where the different court systems throughout the state are in fulfilling their duty under AB 1793. That is a way to apply pressure and provide um, communication and transparency to the public to help move that along. So uh, there's a legislative effort that I'm a part of that I'm working on. And there's also um, the disclosure of progress or lack thereof for the different courts throughout the state that we're putting on our website. I'd like to ask a question about Proposition 1. You answered one of our Q&A questions uh, stating uh, your position on how you would enforce the law. But I'm wondering, looking at the law itself, the, have, you had, have you looked at the actual language of Proposition 1? And if, if you have, there's some discussion about uh, whether Proposition 1 eliminates the question of viability entirety, entirely or whether the uh, part of Section 1 still uh, superimposes itself on that. I'm wondering, what's your take on that? Proposition 1 is very short, as mm -hmm. you know. It's three lines, and I think that um, there's a lot being read into it. I, th I don't think that, that uh, there's nothing um, in, in there around uh, specifically calling out a, a um, uh, you know, a, a point of viability or, or not. Um, it, it's a, a general, uh, but powerful um, and, um, you know, constitutionally codified um, uplifting of the right to privacy and, and, and the right to contraception. And so I think that issue is not necessarily answered by the uh, plain and, and unambiguous language of Proposition 1. It's going to be something that is going to have to be determined uh, by the courts in the future, but I don't, I don't think it changes existing law in that regard. The, the, ma the major uh, importance of Proposition 1 is that it moves these protections from uh, statute to the Constitution uh, without materially changing them. Can I ask a question a little closer to home for us down here near the border? Um, if Title 42 was lifted, um, I know you're not a Fed, but is there a plan in place? Have you been in touch with the federal government? And you know, is is there something in the works here for to prepare for if a, a, a lot of people are able to come over into California? I think there's some fear that there's going to be this mad rush at the border. So I'm just wondering if there's a, if you are making a plan, is there a plan in place? This is, uh, maybe I'll back up and, and sort of talk about my um, general thinking um, on, on immigrants and in this country. Uh, as one, uh, as the son uh, of an immigrant as well, uh, immigrants have built this country. Immigrants make us strong. Um, they have led to California rising to be the fifth largest economy in the world. And in my, in my view, the, the greatest state in the nation, I approach this issue with um, compassion and humanity and empathy and common sense. 
And uh, I know that uh, uh, immigrants have been and will continue to be a huge asset to our uh, our state. And so um, uh, I think I've always been very pro-immigrant with our policy. I, I know, uh, know that we need to have um, comprehensive immigration reform. I'm a big supporter of, of our DACA protections and our protections for our dreamers. Um, and I also know that we also always need to have um, important and common steps and practical steps to, uh, for, for public safety um, and uh, other important um, considerations for our state. So uh, on the specific question of have I talked to the, the administration uh, about uh, a potential influx of, of immigrants into our uh, state from the southern border, that's not a specific conversation that I've had. Um, I'm, I'm happy to have it and, and uh, we've had a good relationship with our uh, federal administration um, since 2020 and um, look forward to continuing to work with them to make sure that we're always striking the right balance between um, empathy, compassion and humanity and um, common sense um, approaches that lead to a, a well-run ordered state. Okay, today the San Diego Union Tribune editorial board is joined by Nathan Hockman, who is running for Attorney General. Nathan, thanks so much for taking the time today. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Sure, and let me ask you uh, uh, just a question about your why you want this job at this time. We've sat down with your opponent, um, the incumbent Rob Bonta, who said he's kind of perfectly positioned for this. In your written Q and A for us, you said he's the most pro-criminal uh, Attorney General. Um, the state has seen. Why are you a good fit? What's 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 the dis, the chief distinction you want to draw between you and your opponent? So there's two chief dis distinctions between me and, and Mr. Bonta that I think are crucial for California voters to understand when they make the selection for attorney general. First, I think that and maybe I'm old fashioned, but I think you actually need to have experience and qualifications for the chief law enforcement job if you actually want to have that job. I have over 30 years of criminal justice experience as a federal prosecutor, a US assistant attorney general and a defense attorney. And Mr. Bonta before he took office has zero years of law enforcement. The analogy I draw is if you were gonna go in for heart surgery and just before you're about to go under, you ask the heart surgeon, what, what experience do you have in doing heart surgery? And he tells you I've actually no, none experience whatsoever in fact, I'm a really good dermatologist, but the president of the hospital has appointed me to be your heart surgeon today, and well, good luck to you. And effectively, that is what having zero law enforcement experience means when you wanna be the chief law enforcement officer. And when it comes to the safety and security problems that are exploding around this state, whether it's violent crime and street crime, whether it's homelessness at an all-time all high, whether it's, not, it's fentanyl poisonings, that are gonna kill more Californians, 17 on average every day, uh, than probably even COVID, or even human trafficking, where we're one of the epicenters of the world of human trafficking. If you've had zero law enforcement experience to tackle these problems, that is a, a huge deficiency in your record. And the second thing is, yes, I believe that Attorney General Rob Bonta has enacted the most pro-criminal agenda probably in California history for an attorney general. He is a full ally of George Gascon in Los Angeles, who he endorsed, Chesa Boudin in San Francisco, 
he, he is one of the sponsors of the no cash bail when he was an assemblyman and still believes that no cash bail is appropriate. So effectively on the street, what that means is that you go ahead and get arrested in the morning and almost for, doesn't matter what the crime is, you're getting released in the afternoon. Again, Mr. Bonta has never participated, as I have, in any bail proceeding, in any criminal trial. He's never prosecuted. He's never gone in front of a judge or a jury. He's never participated in a sentencing. He's never dealt with victims and counseled victims who are suffering from crimes. He's never had to investigate a case himself. Yet Mr. Bonta holds himself out as the chief law enforcement officer of this state. And so it's not surprising if you lack law enforcement credentials. And one of the indications I would say of that is that I have over 20 district attorneys across the state who are supporting my candidacy. And right now, Mr. Bonta on his website lists zero district attorneys supporting his candidacy. What does that tell you about the 58 district attorneys who work for him that he can't list one of them as endorsing him in this campaign? And they're the ones on the front lines dealing with the safety and security issues every day. So I would say that on qualifications, experience, and the agenda that we want to enact, and let me be clear what my agenda is. Now, I can obviously deal with any specific questions on any specific areas, but the core principles break down into three. First, we need to partner with the police to tackle these criminal issues across the state rather than just vilify them. Second, if you want a better hired, trained, and supervised police force, guess what? You got to pay for it and fund those police departments rather than defunding them or cutting their budgets. And third, all crimes need to have proportionate consequences. And by proportionate consequences, I reject the blanket policies of Bonta, Gascon, and Boudin. I reject the blanket policies, and that's on the no incarceration side of the pendulum swing. And I reject the blanket policies on the mass incarceration, put, one everyone, put everyone in jail for 100 years side. I believe in something I've, excuse me, I've called the hard middle. And the reason the middle is hard is it requires an individualized analysis of every defendant, their criminal history, uh, and the impact on the victim to decide who are the people who are true public safety threats and need, need to be behind bars and the ones that are not. And those are the ones that can serve their sentence in community service, diversion, home detention, and whatnot. When you have no law enforcement experience, as opposed to my 30 years of doing it, it's almost impossible for you to calibrate that line. And Mr. Bonta is way off in his calculations of the line, but it's not surprising because he lacks 100% experience in ever having to make those distinctions. So I would say those are the two dividing big dividing issues between myself and Bonta. Let's get into some of those issues, specifically 47 and 57, which I know you've been very critical of. Um, do, do, how, how, should we, how should the state proceed on those? Do you support a full repeal starting from scratch for kind of rewinding the clock? Or do you see the, the way forward is targeted approach, maybe looking at 57 and rape of an unconscious person and, and, and such crimes and, and, and changing um, the balance sheet there? How, how, how would you personally um, uh, suggest the state proceed on those two measures? Certainly. Let's start with 57. And what 57 did is it said that it was going to, in essence, lower the sentences of nonviolent, non-serious offenders. But then it went ahead and used the definitions of what is considered a violent 
serious fel felony, the technical definitions in the penal code to determine who was going to qualify and who wasn't. You point out, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the, if, you, if you go ahead and injure an unconscious person and get engaged in domestic violence, human trafficking, there's a perfect example. Human trafficking, which by definition requires violence, coercion, in addition to the commercial exploitation, for some reason, which completely escapes me, did not make the list of a violent or serious felony. So therefore, if you're convicted of human trafficking, you qualify under 57 as a nonviolent, non-serious offense. As a quick footnote to, to human trafficking, when that issue was before the state legislature this last term, and there was a bill that said, we're gonna finally make human trafficking a violent and serious felony, I campaigned vastly and loudly for that. Rob Bonta, though I must have sent out 10 different messages on social media and had a press conference in Sacramento in front of the Capitol, was missing in action and refused to basically back the human trafficking victims and cited because, because he basically kept human trafficking as a nonviolent, non-serious felony, he sided with the human traffickers. Again, I couldn't disagree with him more, but that's 57. So 57, you could, I mean, it's a proposition. It was passed by the voters, but the legislator can modify it by going through the entire list of what are truly violent and serious crimes, putting them in the definition section of violent and serious crimes, and then a whole lot of people who have committed violent and serious criminal actions will not qualify under 57. 47 is a different situation. 47, yes, the way I look at it is that 47 was sold to the voters as the Safe Neighborhoods and Schools Act. And somehow, magically, if we turn uh, misdemeanors, excuse me, felonies into misdemeanors, that that is actually going to make our neighborhoods more safe and more secure. And as we've seen, the statistics don't lie, it just hasn't happened. And in particular, it hasn't happened in counties where the district attorney then said publicly to all the criminals out there, we are not going to prosecute misdemeanor property offenses. So that's why you have the situation in LA where if you steal just under $950, you can walk out, not run out of a CVS, a Walgreens, or a small business because the DA has announced ahead of time that he will not prosecute you. So what, what I would say is that one of the suggestions that I heard recently that I thought was a very good suggestion was that the state legislature tomorrow could create a serial felony type of add-on to 47. In other words, if you go ahead and you uh, rob just under, commit, let's say, three misdemeanor uh, property crimes within a 60, 90, 180-day time, the third one becomes a, or at least a misdemeanor felony wobbler at that point. Mm -hmm. And if DAs are doing their jobs, you can prosecute misdemeanors. You don't have to just turn your eyes away from all the criminals committing misdemeanors. DAs can <laughs> misdemeanors, and in many of the 58 counties across this state, that's exactly what they do. And they have less, less, less misdemeanor crime, shall we say, in the counties that actually prosecute it than the ones that don't. Thank you for that answer. Certainly. Uh, to Thank return you. to your first answer, uh, you said that Monta had zero experience and uh, therefore was unqualified for the job. Jerry Brown practiced law for two years in the late 1960s and then did nothing before he was elected attorney general in 2006. And he got decent marks as attorney general from uh, from many folks. So was Jerry Brown unqualified to be attorney general in 2006? Well, if I recall, Jerry Brown was the mayor of Oakland 
uh, before he uh, was the attorney general, if my memory serves correct. That's right. Uh, and in, as the mayor of Oakland, you are actually dealing with criminal issues all the time. Now, do I think Jerry Brown had uh, sufficient criminal background to take that job? No, I don't think Jerry Brown, when he became attorney general, uh, was fully qualified to be the chief law enforcement officer, though at least he had been the governor of the state of California. I mean, he was the one deciding clemency issues back in the 70s. He was dealing intimately with criminal justice problems from the gubernatorial level, which is a pretty high level. And I believe he was the mayor of Oakland, so he was seeing it and trying to deal with it at the city level as well. But if you're asking me whether or not, uh, the, you know, on, the, on the, the time he took the job, he was fully qualified to have it, probably not. Jerry Brown was, was more certainly more qualified than Rob Bonta. I mean, in my back to my analogy of a heart surgeon, Jerry Brown at least had done a few heart surgeries before he goes ahead and operates on you or your family member. Rob Bonta has done zero, literally zero. You know, and, and to the extent that he has any indication of any criminal justice background, his instinct is pro-criminal. And his, his signature bill is the no cash bail bill in this regard. And is and obviously rejected by the voters in the proposition that followed. Uh, and it, I would argue a singular failure across California for the districts that have engaged in it, particularly Los Angeles. In the uh, in last month, the LA Times had a, a stunning series about post Proposition 64 and cannabis in California that and its most gripping part depicted uh, reporters flying over northern California in Siskiyou County and picking out dozens and dozens of illegal grow operations. And yet the story seemed to convey the idea that law enforcement believed it couldn't do anything about these illegal operations. When we met with the governor last week, the governor said that uh, that he did, he believed these problems were completely predictable. So so what's your take on the idea that all this was predictable and there's very little the state can do about illegal grow operations? <laughs> well, when you have a pro-criminal agenda, as Rob Bonta does at the state attorney general's office, it's not a surprise that you're going to throw your hands up in the air on going after illegal cannabis growers, uh, illegal human traffickers, illegal fentanyl dealers, where you basically are throwing your hands up in the air and saying, I'm not going to do anything about it. I disagree. If these folks are violating California law, particularly when California has gone ahead and passed propositions and now laws to create a legal cannabis business, if you now are violating that law, the state attorney general's office should lead in going after illegal cannabis growers throughout this state. If we need more money to go ahead and hire more people, the state attorney general should be working with the governor and then the state legislature to go get more money for agents to go after the illegal cannabis growers. And I will tell you that the, the cannabis industry, the legal cannabis industry, absolutely does not want the illegal business to go because they're undercutting their business. And more importantly, the, the whole point of regulating the cannabis business is that you know what's in the weed that you're buying. You know, you can, from basically what they call it, from seed to sale, you know, it's being monitored, it's being licensed, it's being regulated. When you buy illegal weed, what we have seen uh, it, it, throughout the state is that very often it can be laced with uh, a lethal dose of fentanyl. And that is, you know, I mean, to, to say that that's creating even more issues in our state besides the economic issues, 
This is life and death issues. So I would, I would not hesitate to go after the illegal cannabis business in the state. And I don't, I, I, for the people who throw their arms up in the air and say, we can do nothing about it, shame on them. You can absolutely do something. If there's a will, there's a way in this regard. Thank you. No problem. Sorry, sorry, I muted myself. What, what would you do to go after the illegal grows and the illegal growers? Well, again, the, the first thing you need to do is you would work with probably uh, as well. You work with the DEA uh, and you bring all the state resources and local resources to bear. It, it's I mean, I led when I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office, I led 100 complex investigations. And they're I mean, they're, they're not simple, but they, and they require a deal, good deal of experience. But here's what you would do. You would identify all the places in which illegal marijuana is growing. Uh, you can do that in a whole variety of ways, whether you look at it with uh, drones, aerial footage, you bring in uh, uh, power records, electricity records, water usage records, you can figure out where it is. Then you figure out as best you can who's actually in charge of it, because it's one thing in just shutting it down and seizing the product, but to the extent that you want to put them out of business, you actually have to figure out at a beyond a reasonable doubt level, if you want to go after them criminally, Who's responsible for it? And then you do something interesting too, track the money. One of the things I have expertise in doing when I was with the US Attorney's Office and even on the defense side is tracking money. I went after international money launderers. I've dealt with uh, international movement of currency and national, and in particularly the illegal marijuana business so often that is being done in cash, but turning that cash into something else. They, uh, we dealt with an operation out of LA where they turned the cash into jeans. They literally took the cash, bought jeans, brought it down to Mexico, then brought it down to Colombia, sold the jeans, and that's how you laundered the cash. What I'm explaining to you, any seasoned law enforcement officer could go on for hours. But I've dealt with these people. I've worked with these people. I've even defended people against these investigations. And I would, if I... I wouldn't need to lead it myself, but I could understand it from soup to nuts and would be, it wouldn't hesitate to be scared or throw my, up, my, my arms up in the air and say, I can't do it. This is about as doable a city we have with a fixed product on the ground. Can I ask about um, fentanyl? I know that you said fighting the drug epidemic is one of your priorities. Uh, what would you like to do? And specifically, what can you do to stop the sale of drugs on social media? So two or three things. Um, as we know, the reason I have focused on fentanyl is that I dealt with narcotics traffickers back in the 80s, back in the 90s, and in the 2000s. Fentanyl is in a different league. It's not about getting high. It's about actually dying. There are millions of counterfeit pills, Oxycontin, Adderall, uh, Xanax, Percocet, that sadly are being marketed heavily on social media. People are buying. They have no idea that two milligrams of fentanyl laced in those pills will kill you in two minutes. They take the pills, and this sort of silent assassin, which is what I've called fentanyl and its dealers, is indiscriminately killing Californians of every race, every nationality, every ethnicity, every gender, every sexual orientation, every political party. That is the, the, the magnitude of this problem cannot be understated. The media needs to focus on it as well as the California Attorney General. Now, what can the California Attorney General do? He can lead 
a state, federal, and district and local task force going after the dealers. You need the tools to do it. One of the tools that was before the state legislature that Rob Bonta was again missing in action on was to create a notice that would go out to first-time fentanyl dealers that if you actually dealt with fentanyl and someone died, you could be charged with murder the second time out if that person died. The reason you need that notice, which is the same one, by the way, that drunk drivers get after their first conviction, is that there then is no defense that you didn't know that fentanyl could kill someone if you're up for murder on the second time out. So we need the tools to go after what I consider to be murderers. These are not drug dealers. They are murderers. They are basically poisoning people and killing them. So if you can lead and not, not follow or not be missing in action, but lead a federal, state, and local task force to go after the dealers, I would couple that with a massive education effort. I would work with the state legislature and the different departments and the, you know, in, in, with the education departments and whatnot throughout the state to make sure that every middle schooler, every high schooler and their parents understand that we're dealing with a poison in our society, that if it doesn't kill someone you know this year, the way it's exponentially growing within the next two to three years, everyone on this phone call, literally everyone on this phone call will know someone personally or know, know, know someone who knows someone personally that has died from fentanyl poisoning. It is that serious. And the fact that Rob Bonta is mom, you don't hear anything about fentanyl poisoning from Rob Bonta. You don't hear the California Attorney General's office turning its attention to this dire situation. That is the greatest tragedy because these are preventable deaths. And to the extent that there's even one preventable death that had Rob Bonta focused on this for the last year, then he has that preventable death on his hands. And I cannot say it more strongly. I cannot say it more graphically. And I hope tomorrow Rob Bonta gets up and decides he wants to do something on fentanyl. And I will applaud him. I will absolutely applaud anyone who wants to turn their attention to this very dire situation. You can find more information online at San Diego Union Tribune.com slash 2022 election guide. There you'll find Q&As with candidates, pros and cons from both sides of each proposition, videos of the editorial board's interviews, and more. Thanks for listening.